Welcome to Palm Sunday, the beginning of the week that changed forever. It is so good to look out and see more and more people who are coming back home. Every week it feels like we're moving closer and closer to a normal that we wondered if we would ever see again. It's great to have our choir leading us in worship this morning. Thank you for that, and I know next week you're going to bless us as well. It is good to add my greetings to those that you've already received. Well, it was the, um, it was the slap that was heard around the world, wasn't it? Will Smith, who was offended by what comedian Chris Rock had to say about his wife, walked onto the stage at the Oscars and cold-cocked the guy. Frankly, it was the most newsworthy thing to happen in the Oscars in the last 20 years. <laughs> the media has been abuzz about it ever since. But for me, the most grown-up response came from actor Denzel Washington, who spoke to Will Smith and offered this advice. He said, in your highest moments, be careful, because that's when the devil comes for you. In your highest moments, be careful. That's when the devil comes for, for you. I've had some high moments in my life. I've stood on the top of Mount Rainier and on the top of Half Dome. I've stood on the observation deck of the World Trade Center. And I have jumped out of an airplane. But of course, that, those aren't the heights that Denzel was warning against, are they? He was referring to those moments of glory when everyone is speaking well of you, praising your accomplishments, applauding your feats, when you're standing on the top of the world, that's when you are at greatest risk. That's when the enemy of your soul launches a sneak attack. That's exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus himself. The moment after he was baptized, immediately after he was baptized and before he was ready to launch his earthly ministry for which he had waited 30 years, immediately the devil led him into temptation. He was tempted to avoid the way of the cross, attempted to bypass the way that the Father had set out for him. And do you recall that two of those temptations occurred in the heights? In the second temptation, Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point of the temple, looking out over the Kidron Valley, and told him to throw himself off that the angels might dramatically save his life. And in the third temple, in the third temptation, Satan took Jesus to the top of a high mountain, we are told, and allowed him to survey all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all of this I will give you if you will but bow your knee to me. As it turns out, the heights are a dangerous place for everyone, and for Christian leaders particularly, it seems. This last decade, we have seen one prominent Christian leader after another fall from the heights. Gifted, accomplished men at the pinnacle of their ministries who tumbled headlong, their reputation destroyed, their ministry destroyed, the hearts of their followers, their millions of followers, broken. And more than once I have been asked if I've listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And my answer has always been the same, no, and I don't want to. I don't need to. I know the story. I can't bear to hear it again. It is the same song, second verse, and third verse, and fourth verse, and fifth verse, and on it goes. 
What is the greatest tool that the devil uses to bring down Christian leaders, to bring reproach to Jesus, to bring reproach to his church? The greatest tool, it's pride. Pride is the mother of all sins. Adam and Eve fell because pride caused them to eat the forbidden fruit. It is pride that whispers to the great leaders to believe their own press releases, to believe that the rules don't apply to them, to believe that they are somehow above it all. Pride is the great toxin in the church. And I think Peter understood this well, all too well. He remembered the many moments in his walk with Jesus when pride got the best of him. When in his pride, he ordered parents to keep the children away from Jesus because he didn't have time for that silliness. When in pride, he rebuked Jesus for talking about his impending crucifixion. When in pride, he refused to let Jesus wash his feet. When in pride, he boasted that even if every other disciple were to fall away, he would lay down his life for Jesus. Remember those moments? Peter learned his pride lessons the hard way, but he learned them. He learned them, it seems. And now as he closes this letter to the leaders of churches that are scattered throughout an unbelieving empire, he concludes by focusing on the essential quality for great Christian leadership. And see if you can spot it in our text. We turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, the last chapter. I will pick it up a couple of fragments of the verse that, of the text we used last week and then carry on in verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. This is the word of the Lord. So, did you spot the essential Christian leadership quality? In 2001, Jim Collins wrote a book that took the business world by storm. Some of you probably read it. Good to Great good to great. And in it, Collins looked at, a, at a companies of enduring greatness, greatness that transcended the generations. And he discovered that they all had one thing in common, something that he called a level five leader. And what was the number one quality of a level five leader? Humility. Humility. Not brilliance, not charisma, not courage, not determination, not ruthlessness, humility. This idea shook the business world. Never before had someone asserted that the single most important quality in a truly effective leader is humility. Well, never 
before, except perhaps for Peter. Because in this passage where Peter has been outlining a number of qualities of effective Christian leadership, it is humility that he chooses to repeat again and again and again. He, he brings it up in, first, in the first verse when he refers to himself as a fellow elder. I touched on this last week, but it is worth noting again because it is the starting point of this series of, of humility hints. Peter doesn't call himself the rock as Jesus renamed him. He didn't call himself the leader of the twelve. He didn't call himself the apostle to the Jews. He didn't call himself the founder of the Jerusalem church. He didn't call himself the the vicar of Christ or the first pope. What does Peter call himself? What does Saint Peter call himself? I'm just a fellow elder. I'm just one of you. That's humility. That's where it begins The second humility hint comes in verse 3, where he says that godly shepherds should lead, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That word domineering doesn't do it justice. It is a far more vibrant word in the Greek. It means literally lording over. Lording over. He says we should not be lording over those in our charge. And again, as you have throughout this entire letter, you you hear the echo of the Master's teachings, don't you? You hear the words of Jesus coming forth from the soul of Peter. For surely he must have remembered that moment that is recounted in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus told his disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. The exact same word he uses here. Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus continues to his disciples, not so with you. That's a very harsh rebuke, actually. It's a very harshly stated phrase. Not so with you. Jesus says, you, you who are my disciples, you will not be tyrants. You will not domineer. You will not lord it over my people. You will lead by example and not by intimidation. Again, humility. Peter continues, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Now, I know I speak only for myself when I say that when I was young, I was a little bit arrogant, maybe a tad prideful. When I spoke about my ministry, it was always my and me and mine. It was my youth group, my kids, my program. My mentor, Pastor Dave, urged me to banish the words I, me, my, and mine from my vocabulary, but I never could, or I never would, at least for the longest time, because frankly, I think I was proud of my program, and I wanted to boast it. And there were times when that pride just burst out without any any subtlety whatsoever. I'll never forget an argument that I had with an older staff member one day, and I was not getting my way, and finally, in my frustration, I ended the conversation by shouting, listen, I am a youth director. You are just a secretary. Exactly the response that it deserves. (laughs) It was hideous and stupid, given what I know about assistants today, that they actually run the church. (laughs) So I did these, and I did countless other embarrassing things in the early decades of my life. I was arrogant. I was stupid. And I know there couldn't possibly be a younger person here who behaved so despicably. But 
on the chance that there might be some younger friends who think, these old people, they don't get it. They are so out of touch. I urge you to consider it is possible that people who have lived decades and decades and decades of life might have learned a thing or two. That if you learned it, you wouldn't have to learn it the hard way. Right? It isn't coincidence that spiritual leaders were called elders because it was believed that experience could bring wisdom. It doesn't always, but it could bring wisdom. We elders won't always be right, but it might be that we who have a few more miles on our tires have something to contribute to the conversation. If you're young and bright and ambitious, it will be somewhat frustrating to slow down long enough to listen. Peter says, but it will be worth it. Then he carries on, though, and he draws a a larger circle. Verse 5 says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter goes on to say, it's not just the young people who are to humble themselves. Now we find everyone in the church is to live in humility. That phrase, clothe yourselves, It's a word that actually literally suggests the putting on of an apron, the wrapping around of an apron. And you say, hmm, what what might Peter have been thinking of there? This coming Maundy Thursday, we are going to remember the night when Jesus wrapped a towel around himself and knelt down to wash the filthy feet of his disciples. The chore that was normally reserved for the lowest slave on the totem pole in that house. This act by a rabbi was considered so outrageously inappropriate and undignified that Peter said, I will not have it. He would not let Jesus do it until Jesus persuaded him. But now we have an older and wiser and humbler Peter. He tells his readers, all of them, to wrap themselves in humility. The kind of humility that Jesus wrapped himself in. He says, Do this in your service of one another. And you better do it because now comes a really a quite terrifying warning. We trip over these words, but I want you to listen what he says next. He says, do this. Wrap yourselves, clothe yourselves in humility, all of you, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Think about that for just a moment. God opposes the proud. It's not just that God doesn't like it when we are proud. It's not just that he is disappointed in us when we are proud. God opposes the proud. You want God to work at cross purposes to you in your life and in your ministry? Then go ahead, he says, be proud. See how that works out for you. But if you want God's redemptive, forgiving, second chance offering grace in your life, then Peter says, you better cultivate humility. But Peter, who is a converted egotist, is not quite done yet. Now he gives us the payoff for this. He paints paints a picture of two prideful excesses, the anxious person and the careless person. The anxious person and the careless person. First of all, he He portrays to us the prideful, anxious person. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Did you know that one of the great symptoms of pride is anxiety? That might come as somewhat of a surprise to you. I know I hate hearing this since, as I've told you in the past, anxiety is one of my spiritual gifts. But, but Peter says that when you are anxious, when you worry, your pride is saying that God is not capable of dealing with your problems. You can't trust God to get you out of this jam. So because your God is incompetent, you anxiously gnaw on your issue like a dog on a bone. And Peter says that is pride. If you want to cultivate humanity, then humility, then every time you start to worry about something, he says, repent of it. Cast it on the Lord. That's actually a violent throwing. Throw your pride back to the Lord. Cast it upon the Lord. Cast all your anxieties upon him because, in fact, he cares for you and he is big enough to do something about it. So pride is anxious. Pride is anxious. On the other opposite, on the opposite end of the spectrum, pride can be careless. Listen to verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Pride can be anxious because it doesn't believe that God can take care of every problem. But the other extreme of pride is carelessness, living life in spiritual oblivion. Ignoring the fact that we have a spiritual enemy, the devil, that we have a target painted on our chest. That this enemy is intent on harming our marriage, on harming our children, on harming our grandchildren, on harming our health, on harming our finances and our reputation. Anything he can do to discourage us and weaken our witness. Don't let your pride make you careless. Be sober-minded, Peter says. Be watchful. You have a spiritual enemy, and that enemy is ruthless. Cindy took our grandchild to the zoo the other day, and they were feeding the tiger. The trainers there have taught that tiger to crouch in readiness and look directly at them in order to receive her meat. She can't just lounge and waiting for the food to be tossed to her. She has to look. And so Cindy watched as she strained and crouched and leaned and stared. And when the, when the trainer threw the meat, she says, she leapt into the air and snatched it out and gobbled it down. My wife tells me that even though she was on the other side of a fence, on the other side of a moat, that the ferocity of her gaze and the ferocity of her attack was terrifying to her. That is the danger that we face, Peter says. And the proud Christian, what an oxymoron that is, the proud Christian is careless about their peril. I mean, there are some people who see a devil behind every bush. There's plenty that's wrong in us that can cause us to do stupid and harmful things. But there are too many believers who don't take the devil at all seriously. In their pride, they think themselves impervious to temptation. And it is just then that the devil takes them out. If you are flirting with someone not your spouse, 
or drinking or smoking too much or watching porn or fudging your expense account or putting yourself in a compromising situation with a boyfriend or girlfriend. You are opening yourself up to spiritual attack. And it takes humility to recognize your vulnerability and to resist that spiritual danger. Humility. So has Peter made his point to you by now? Again and again, humility, humility, humility. The single greatest leadership quality is humility. Perhaps even more foundational than love. Because love requires you to put someone before yourself. The very thing that pride will not allow. Now here's the deal. Every one of us battles pride. I still battle with pride. I think back this last week, there was an incident where I could feel pride's spindly fingers trying to wrap themselves around our neck, my neck. As I said, it is the mother of all sins. The issue then isn't, am I proud? Of course I am proud, but over time the issue is, what is the trajectory of my pride? As I compare me to my 30-year-old me, a me who wanted to make a name for himself, a, na- a me who wanted to be known, a, a ne- me who craved the spotlight. I can say today that those things men- mean less to me now. That is good. I need less of the spotlight that I once craved. I can celebrate the successes of my young colleagues with as much delight as my own. And I find myself more inquisitive than I was at the age of 30 because I realize I know less now than I thought I knew then. That was knowing laughter. (laughs) The the thing is, if you are reasonably healthy emotionally, spiritually, if you're reasonably self-aware, here's the good news. Life will beat the pride right out of you. Right? Life will beat the pride right out of you if you are at all self-aware. But if you aren't, if your pride trajectory continues to be up and to the right, you had better be terrified because it is going the wrong way and you will find Almighty God in opposition to you. The only way for us to battle pride is to confess it for what it is, our sin. To admit it and to repent of it. And to ask that more of the Holy Spirit Jesus, of Jesus will fill the space which pride vacates. Only Jesus can pummel our pride into submission because only Jesus was perfectly humble before the Father. And the supreme expression of that is found in one of what I think is the most poignant and profound passages in all of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2. That great Christ hymn. It's there that Paul tells us that Jesus, out of his love for us, abandoned his place in heaven next to his Father, emptied himself completely, and took on the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And this is Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of the week that we call holy. When Jesus, despite the shame and the pain that awaited him, stalked into Jerusalem, ready to take on his enemies, including his supreme enemy, Satan. He who had every right to be proud rejected it. He who had every right to be served became the servant. He who had the power to call upon the angels of heaven forbade their interference and walked alone to the cross because he loves you.
and because He loves me. And when we see such splendor clothed in humility, it puts us in our proper place. I heard last week someone shared these words with me. The proper place of a Christian is never higher than Jesus' feet. The proper place of a Christian is never higher than Jesus' feet. John Bunyan captured this idea in a poem. He wrote, He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. So, where do you stand? Or where, rather, do you kneel this day? Perhaps you need to lower yourself to your proper place at the Master's feet this morning. It wouldn't hurt me. And so I invite you, if you're able, to join me on our knees before the Lord as we confess what we know to be true. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, urged them to think the way that Jesus did. Here's what he said to them. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord Jesus, you who were great became small. You who were God became man. You who deserved accolades, praise, and glory, you cast all of that aside And in that humility, you came to serve us. Serve us to the point of death on a cross, the greatest ignominy that was possible. And so we kneel on our knees and in our hearts before you this day. We confess our own pride. We confess that we often want things our own way, that we think more of ourselves than we ought to think. We beg your forgiveness. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would cast out those instincts of ours to vaunt ourselves, to lift ourselves up, to be first, to, to get our preference. Holy Spirit, would you pummel that instinct in us, beat it down, so that we might say with our Master, we did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give our lives as a gift to many. May that be our heart this day, Lord. We pray for this for our church, too. We who are large, we who have great resources, how easy it would be to make much of ourselves, to vaunt ourselves. I pray that we would never be that kind of church. I pray that we would be a church who has been given much but gives much back and to whom the community looks not in awe but in appreciation as we seek to serve in the likeness of Jesus Christ whom we serve. Holy God, we kneel before you for no 
there's no better place for us to be than at our master's feet. We offer these prayers in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 1030 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.